0: Architecture is brought to you by Pontiac Intelligence. Pontiac Intelligence is a demand-side platform designed for running high-quality CTV campaigns. With its proprietary bidder and a focus on privacy-safe era, Pontiac brings clear and powerful differentiation from the crowded DSP space. Transparent, low-tech fees, accurate forecasting, and the ability to manage thousands of simultaneous campaigns with ease. See a demo and learn more at Pontiac.media. That's Pontiac.media. Welcome to the Market Texture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and Chris Kane from Jounce Media. So Chris is our first time ever repeat guest. He's like the Steve Martin of the of the Market Texture Podcast. And we have him on because this is a special episode to focus on MFA, made for advertising, of which Chris is an expert, which is a very hot topic. So we have a lot of really great things to talk about. After the interview, we have Justify Your Existence with Finestra, which is a bid optimization company. We spoke previously with Chalice, so it should be interesting to compare and contrast what the various companies in optimization have to say. All right. So with that said, Chris, thanks for being here. Good to be back. All right, Chris, so why, I guess let's start with like, why are we all suddenly obsessed with MFA MFA has been around forever, but it's like the season of MFA.
1: It is the season of MFA. I think it's been a slow boil and I think that boil boiled over when the ANA pushed out their first look report in June, there was, you know, a group of people, three of us, plus a bunch of others who are kind of like close to the center of the industry and have been generally aware of this business model for a long time. But all of a sudden, through the ANA report, every agency, every brand is starting to ask questions about this category of supply. And so I, you know, that's, that's my simplistic interpretation of sort of how we've gotten here. And by the way, that's gonna happen again in another week when the ANA pushes out its final report.
0: Right, so the ANA report said that 15% of all ad spend was going to MFA sites, is that accurate? Correct, yeah, 21% of impressions capturing
1: 15% of spend. And do you think the next
0: report could be worse?
1: I don't know if there's going to be any new numbers in that next report just for clarity we're we're not we don't we're not part of the team that's writing that report we didn't you know we're hired by the ANA for this I, I, they've they've reached out quite a bit we've been you know as collaborative as we can be they've provided some i think really thoughtful questions but i don't have a good sense of what's going to be in the right. final report so
0: the MFA, so the ANA site uh, excuse me the ANA report came out and then there was a Digiday article saying, or was an ad exchanger saying, like, actually, MFA is really not so bad. And we, we roasted them pretty hard on this <laughs> podcast. I recall. Yeah, I remember listening <sighs> to that one. Uh, and, then <laughs> there's, and then there's some reaction and some DSPs and agencies said we won't buy MFA anymore. But it all sort of begged the question, which is, what is an MFA site? How can you determine? And I think that's where you have a lot of insights. So how do you define an MFA site?
1: Well, and I, and I also think maybe that's the other answer to your first question. Like, the reason this is starting to become a thing is that there's now some specificity around it. Like, there's been, there's been a lot of anecdotes and you know it when you see it sort of stuff for many years, but, you know, you can't really take action on you know it when you see it. And I think what has also happened over the course of the last several months is sort of like some consensus being built around, like, how do you sort of like reasonably draw a circle around the pool of supply that we're going to call mfa and frankly there still is ambiguity there and the reality is these are judgment calls which makes everybody feel uncomfortable they should be very data-driven judgment calls they should be very transparent judgment calls but they are judgment calls but they're much more there's much more specific guidance now from the ana isba forays i think the wfa signed off on it as well there's this there's this reasonably specific definition floating around the industry now Here's my interpretation of it. We basically are looking for three characteristics of a website to call it made for advertising. And they one leads to the next. Sort of characteristic number one is paid traffic. We should debate this maybe in some more detail, but we're looking for publishers that are highly dependent on paid traffic as sort of like a core component of their business model. Second, as a result of paid traffic, Somehow you have to overcome those traffic acquisition costs. And one way to do it is to very aggressively monetize the landing page. And so factor number two is a very aggressive, uh, aggressively monetized uh, page view through some combination of high ad density, rapid auto refresh and so on. And then third is what we call superficial KPIs, evidence that while the site might exhibit some attractive media metrics like high viewability or brand safety or low IVT, that it doesn't drive business outcomes for marketers. And that's not exactly the same as the definition put out by those industry trade groups, but it's sort of, it's our interpretation. Like, how do you take their guidance and turn it into some, like, concrete tests?
0: Those sound like good criteria, but they are a little slippery when you really dive into them. Like, It's
2: extremely slippery. It's extremely slippery. BuzzFeed would be called an MFA site when they launched. Any media startup that doesn't have a brand, that doesn't have... Any awareness of their business? How are they going to get the word out about what they're doing? They need to buy traffic. It's like super concerning that this not only penalizes startups and, you know, other you know not, not, not well-known media companies, but there's no specificity to it. And I realize that it's a problem. And I realize MFA, you know it when you see it, particularly as you talk about ad density and not designed to drive marketing KPIs. But the whole thing, like when I read it this morning, it was like really concerning.
1: Well, look, I think, of course, I agree with, you know, your general concerns, but to talk in specifics, I think it's very important to also recognize that, like, there are thousands, many, probably tens of thousands, certainly single-digit thousands of independent content creators that are doing the hard work to publish really high-quality content and gradually, slowly over time, build an organic audience. And for every publisher that takes the shortcut of just buying heaps of paid traffic it's not just that those ads aren't effective for marketers, which they're not and we can talk about. It's that they're taking budget away from the media companies that are doing the hard work to gradually, methodically, over time, build an organic. Right. App. So
0: let's talk about that criteria. That's criteria number three, the doesn't produce real results. Is that a consistent criterion? And how do you find that out? Like, basically, if, is that you just have to be running, you know, a platform at scale where you have enough data to tell that it doesn't produce results?
1: Well, I can tell you how we do it, and I think there's a very important sort of like corollary to this is like a blind spot for publishers. Our, the basics of our business is we're sourcing data from a whole diversity of sources. One of the most important sources is signing data sharing agreements with marketers who say like, hey you can study in aggregate anonymously our campaign data to inform your research. And so we currently monitor fifty million dollars per month or six hundred million dollars a year of spend, which is big enough and diverse enough to allow us to measure some of these things. And we can quantify for any website what we call a conversion score, which is skipping some of the details, like does this site generate more sales than you would sort of naturally expect or fewer sales? And so we regenerate that every day for every site on the internet. And we are not willing to call a publisher MFA unless the data substantiates that the ads on this site are very ineffective at driving sales, maybe the wrong word, but being attributed with sales by...
0: So does that look like high view through and low click through attribution?
1: Or am I simplifying? It's, it's, it's like none of either of those things. It's like you find that like the sites on this website are almost never followed in time. by. I, I thought the
0: whole point of these websites was to grab view through cookies.
1: I think what these sites are good at is taking budget from campaigns that are optimizing to media metrics and that are not measuring sales.
2: Yeah, view, viewability, clicks, all that stuff. It's
1: the consumer packaged goods companies, the other upper funnel, mid funnel campaigns that are, have a very hard time measuring sales and instead optimize to a metric like a cost per viewable impression.
0: Are real humans seeing these ads or are the people seeing the ads also fake?
1: I think they're real humans.
0: But they're having no effect on on their purchasing activity.
1: Correct. And to me, this sort of like checks out. I've clicked on plenty of clickbait ads. You go to the site, you might even stay there a long time. There's one that was floating around Twitter recently about like some story about like digging the deepest hole that's ever been dug or whatever. And it's like, man, I could, that is kind of interesting. I'll stay there. But like, I'm certainly not paying attention to like the insane flanking of the viewport of, you know, these, you know, high density auto-refreshing ads.
2: That's a... The, the, those those ones you're referring to on Twitter, and by the way, Twitter X is littered with this stuff right now. It's becoming, I think, the the, the place to do MFA arb. That's a you know when you see it t- type of site, right?
1: I think that's right, but I also think publishers rightfully are sort of demanding that like we're not making a bunch of like on the fly note when you see a judgment calls. So there has to be some like systematic, you know, even handed approach here.
0: how? how- I was going to ask on the first criteria, the paid traffic, where do you get that data from?
1: This one is the hardest for a variety of reasons. We buy data from similar web. It's sometimes right. And sometimes very wrong. Um, we look at that are in page URLs. Those are also sometimes redacted, I think deliberately, um, without giving away too much of sort of like the playbook. The best signal is the shape of bid requests. Real, like publishers that have real organic audiences have very predictable weekly patterns of bid request volumes. This week looks the same as last week. Publishers that are buying absurd amounts of traffic see incredibly jagged patterns of daily bid requests. And so that is that is directional. That's not like a deterministic, like, oh, I observed you buying traffic on Facebook. But it's a very, very good predictor. And it's also a prohibitively expensive predictor to to avoid. You know, like it costs a lot of money to inflate your traffic volume. And so it's cost prohibitive to kind of like fake it forever.
2: What's the right amount of non-organic traffic?
1: That's the question. That's the hard one, right? Because what you'd want, let me say a couple things on that. First, I I—I th- would have been too timid to say this maybe a year ago, but we've done a lot of research on this. And I think it is very clear that a page view that's the result of paid traffic creates substantially inferior outcomes for marketers than a page you that's a result of organic traffic it doesn't matter whether you're a clickbait site or the most premium publisher on the internet paid traffic does not perform as well as organic traffic and so like conceptually you'd love to say publishers that buy paid traffic get blocked but then you block the whole internet it's very hard to find a publisher that doesn't buy traffic and so it's like okay so we're now saying that if a publisher is totally dependent on paid traffic, there's good demonstration that that's a bad business, product, business outcome for marketers and we should block that site. But we're acknowledging that even the most premium published on the Internet buy some paid traffic. And so now we're having a very difficult debate about like, well, how much is too much? If 5% of my traffic is paid, is that OK? What about 10%? 15%? What if I get to 40%? 50%? Like, where is that line? And I don't know the answer to that question. So
0: you're saying the top premium publishers pay for some piece of the traffic?
1: 100%. Very hard to find or, a household name uh, publisher that isn't right now arbitraging clickbait ads that run on Facebook. Why? Are, why? I think there are basically three reasons. One is they really want to build their audience. You buy traffic in order to Build new loyal site visitors. Two is you want to just simply arbit through programmatic a- advertising. You want to just like boost that you're, you're you're coming up short on your Q3 revenue, and so you gotta inflate it all, and you're gonna arbit. And we can talk about how that works. And then I think the other is you've oversold a campaign that you know you thought you were gonna have a hundred page views, and you actually only have ninety, and so now to to deliver this campaign in full, you're gonna buy the extra ten.
0: Right. Makes sense. So you send me, let's talk about false positives or, or false negatives. I don't know. The, you know, sites that are legit that are being swept in with this anti MFA activities, you send me a really interesting article from Digiday about black owned publishers who is being,
1: who is being labeled MFA. Yep. What's going on there? Well, I guess I, I don't know how to speak to the specifics cause that publisher wouldn't disclose who they, what they're, you know, who they were. But I have a couple thoughts on this thing. I think the biggest one is publishers have, should be concerned about the risk that they are incorrectly being labeled as MFA. I see this all over the place when we work with brands and agencies who built their own lists. And Eric, you were sort of touching on this earlier, although maybe in a different context. There are a lot of publishers that you know publish ridiculous clickbait that should not be sort of like swept in with this category of made-for-advertising publishers. And so you know, the tests that I described earlier, I think are pretty thoughtful tests. And there's just like, there are a lot of false positives. We try really hard to avoid those false positives. I think there are also publishers that are not false positives. They're real, sites that really are clearly meaning the definition of made for advertising that I described, that you feel bad about labeling made for advertising. You know, you want black owned media to succeed. You want Eric, to your point earlier, like, fledgling media companies to, to succeed and grow. You want a, a competitive landscape. Having said that, this is not a matter of, like, who we want to succeed. This is about having a systematic, standardized way that is that is robust. And and just the reality is, like, again, I don't know who that publisher was that was referenced in the digital article, but yes, there are Black-owned media companies that are entirely dependent on ad arbitrage and it would be irresponsible to not label them as made for advertising. I don't
0: know. I think the African-American community should participate in the chumbox economy.
1: Look, I think there's... This is sort of like the perfect example of why this is such a thorny topic. It's just... It's so multi-tentacled. Like, there's just so many sort of angles on this thing. One important consideration here, as it relates to not necessarily black-owned media, but like diverse-owned media more broadly... Is back to the point I was making earlier, like all the other companies that are doing the hard work to build an organic audience. There are budgets that are earmarked, five, six, seven, eight percent of budget at major brands and agencies that, at least in the US, that are earmarked to be deployed to diverse owned media businesses in order to foster the growth of a whole bunch of media owners that have been sort of like pretty structurally sidelined in the industry. That's a very noble cause. Okay, now those budgets get deployed to a media company who's totally dependent on ad arbitrage. And two, I think, I guess three very bad things fall out of it. First is paid traffic doesn't work and it's a bad use of the marketer's funds. That's actually kind of a secondary consideration here. The other two things that are really important when that happens is, first, it's not like that budget gets thrown away if it doesn't go to the ad arbitrage publisher. It would go to thousands of other independent, diverse-owned media companies that are doing the hard work to build an organic audience, and Arbitrage takes money away from those publishers. And two, the flow of money is the agency pays its DSP, the DSP through the supply chain pays the diverse-owned media company, and then the diverse-owned media company sends 90% of that money to Facebook. That's not supporting the growth of diverse-owned media. That's putting more. That's spending more money with Facebook.
0: So, what should we be doing about this? Should we, should there be a universal exclude list at the DSP level, and you just shouldn't be able to buy them, or it should be brand to brand, or some accommodation?
1: We field a so we write monthly research. Our December report each year is based on a survey that we field to all of our clients, and so we just started fielding it. One of the one of the questions in there is, how should DSPs handle made for advertising? What's the right thing to do here, and there is overwhelming consensus that the answer is not that DSPs should sort of like defer this responsibility to their customers. It's like there's there's a point of view broadly across everybody we work with that like, no, the DSPs need to doing something here. And there is similarly like really clear point of view that DSPs cannot be too heavy handed here. That it would not be reasonable for a DSP to make it impossible to buy made for advertising. The debate is, is this an opt-in or an opt-out? Should, DSPs, should the default setting of a DSP be to include MFA and make it easy to push a button to say, "No, I want to turn this campaign off?" or should the default behavior be I want to block MFA, I expect my DSP to block MFA by default, and then I want a button to turn it on as needed?:
0: And there's an incentive issue here because the MFA sites have
1: huge amount of QPS because they have so many ads. We've tracked this pretty closely. As a percent of web auctions, this is a web concept, as a percent of web auctions, in June, MFA supply was 30% of all web auctions. So it's an absolutely astronomical amount of QPS. That is coming down. There's actually some interesting stuff there, but that is coming down. Maybe it's 20% of the bid stream now. It's still an absolutely enormous multi-million bid request per second category of supply. And so
0: there's also a carbon linkage here. So we talk about carbon a lot lately. Scope 3 got funding $20 million last week, and we had Goodloop on here. This is a lot of wasted bandwidth and wasted CPU power.
1: Right, so I think there's a, maybe two angles to that one. First is if you just think this is a waste of everybody's time and money, then 30% of the bid stream is, is a waste, and that's 30% of the industry's carbon emissions. I think that's not a reasonable point of view. The more measured point of view is what Scope 3 put out in their State of Sustainable Advertising report, which is even if you think the quality of made-for-advertising is on a problem, just on a you know carbon-per-impression basis, MFA sites are 26% more carbon-intensive than the rest of the Internet.
2: Chris, how much do DSPs use your methodology to determine an MFA site or not an MFA site? Because I think your, like, three categories, um, that's really good, right? Because everybody buys traffic, so I think, you know, using that in a vacuum is bad. But then when you start going down to, you know, the appearance of the page, number of ads on the page, how this then performs for real marketer KPIs, all that stuff ends up, you know, I think coming together into a black or white, is this MFA or is this is this not MFA? So it would appear to me that blocking MFA as a result, if it's based on good methodology, is the way to do this. And then, you know, publisher by publisher, working with brands and agencies that aren't on, you know, some sort of designated list, there's a process for getting them included.
1: I think that's all right. To answer your question, you know, nearly every ad tech company works with us and has access to our data, buy side and sell side. Okay. They do different things with it, but I guess the, the other thing that I think is worth highlighting here is I think publishers are sort of, like, rightly frustrated that things like brand safety, for example, are a total black box, and this can't be like that. Like, publishers deserve clarity without having to write a check into, like, how are you currently being classified and should have a clear process, I think you were sort of getting at this, to sort of, like, dispute these classifications and so we try really hard to make that easy. You know, like the data that we classify is available to thousands of companies that work with us and available for free to any publisher that thinks that we might be making a mistake or is just generally curious about how we classify their supply. So,
0: so Chris, do your customers, what do they actually say? Do they say, based on your data, I want to blacklist, everything? Or do some of them have more subtle, subtle points of view?
1: There's an enormous range. There are DSPs we work with who make it literally impossible to buy MFA based on our data. There are DSPs we work with who turn it off by default but allow buyers to opt in. There's DSPs we work with who do the opposite, have it on by default but make it easy for buyers to block it. There's DSPs who take our data and just are it's too early. They're just using it to audit. Like am I spending one percent of my budget, ten percent, fifty percent of my budget on MFA? So there's there's a huge range, I think. This has gone from being like a slow build over many years doing research to all of a sudden an emergency. And I think everybody in the industry, buy side and sell side, is sort of like struggling to move fast enough to sort of like address a problem that has a lot of spotlight, But, but, but address it responsibly. You know, I mean, the conversation, the points, Eric, that you were making at the very beginning, I think are very valid. And like I try hard to like listen to the market. Like we don't have this isn't fully baked. We're like figuring this out as we go. And I think a lot of DSPs and SSPs and especially agencies are trying to take a measured approach, saying, like, of course we want to look into this, but we don't want to make, like, a snap decision and do something that's incredibly aggressive that we're then going to regret. Like, we have to be measured in how we're going to address this, and we have to constantly be listening to feedback from the market.
0: And we've talked about this on a previous episode, but effectively, publishers, mainstream publishers, cause this problem in some sense because they run the content recommendation boxes from companies like Outbrain and Taboola, which are the source of the paid traffic to those sites that they compete against.
1: You're right, but I think that's also overstated. Um, about 10 to 15% of traffic to MFA publishers comes from premium publishers. The huge, super majority of traffic to MFA publishers comes from Facebook. Interesting.
0: Uh, so that's paid advertising on. on
1: yeah, it's clickbait ads running in. You know, clickbait ads can run in content recommendations widgets at the bottom of CNN clickbait ads can run in the news feed on Facebook. Right. Both of these, Uh, both CNN and Facebook are sending traffic to MFA publishers. CNN's a drop in the bucket. Got it.
0: And Facebooks are presumably better targeted because they're good at that. So one thing that came up in this discussion was the CNAME subdomain trick. I love a good trick. So what's going on with the CNAME subdomain trick for those of us who aren't on top of it?
1: Yeah, I don't know that I can speak much to the technical details, but I can, I can explain the business backdrop here. Brands and agencies and DSPs and to some degree SSPs are blocking MFA domains. Those MFA companies can then essentially rent a subdomain from a reputable publisher that isn't on a block list. And so you can move your MFA business to operate on someone else's domain. And so MFA publisher goes to some premium publisher and says, hey, let me get a subdomain from you. I'm going to drive traffic to it. I'm going to populate it with content. I'm going to monetize it all. And we're going to split the revenue and block lists. Generally speaking, don't work that well at the subdomain level. And so now you got to make a business call of like, well, if I'm dealing with a premium publisher and 30% of their traffic is this subdomain that's arbed, either I block the whole domain or I open myself up to of traffic being MFA.
0: So, are they hoping that people just don't notice that, like, you know, there's some subdomain called like content.legitimatesite.com is actually garbage, whereas www.legitimatesite.com is good?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the business bet. I think premium publishers are increasingly aware that this could turn out to, this could turn around and bite them.
0: It just seems so, so dirty. I mean, if you were outside of this industry and you heard about, you know, we don't want to name names here, but a legitimate publisher, like one that your mom knows is doing this. It's just
1: pretty dirty stuff. Yeah, that's my view. I mean, look, I think the other way to think about this though is, you know, I think the MFA companies deserve a lot of culpability here. I think a lot of premium publishers without realizing what they're signing up for have signed up for what's a pretty underhanded business practice. And as those companies listen to this podcast, I think they, you know, there's a lot of, as these companies generally get more educated, I'm optimistic that the subdomain loophole starts to fade away. Because because it, it really does put the overall business at risk. It's also fairly easy to block. So if you know about it, you can block it.
0: So, this is a great conversation. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with the news of the week as well as a new game we want to play. It should be fun called Explain This Press Release. So, we'll be right back. This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power their programmatic ad break decisioning via products, including a unified auction server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to GetPublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. All right, we're back. All right, so we're playing a new game. It's called Explain This Press Release, where we're going to read some excerpts from a exciting new development in ad tech, according to the press release, and see if we can understand it at all. The first, we're going to roast my good friend, Jonathan Mendez. So Jonathan and I have known each other for quite some time. I consider him a friend. And he put out a press release about his new company called Neuralift AI. And the three brains on this podcast are going to see if we can tell what they do. Okay, I'm going to summarize some stuff here. Neuralift is the first applied AI built to optimize consumer conversion rate and other essential marketing KPIs. Okay, that kind of makes sense. It redefines customer intelligence and it's a step change in the use of first-party consumer data. Any thoughts so far? I'm stumped. All right. right. Built for marketing leaders and the innovation and analytics teams that support customer growth, Neuralift surfaces actionable insights contextualized within the framework of your business. Eric, would you invest in this? What's going on here? I feel like I need to recuse myself from this
2: conversation because I talked to Jonathan about it and I can actually explain what the business
0: does. No, you, you don't have to recuse yourself. You'd be helping him out here. What, is it, what does this mean? <laughs> what does what it mean? Actual insights contextualized within the framework of your business? They are taking first-party data, so, so customer data. They are creating,
2: I believe, they're sort of like creating unique cohorts of users and then deriving insights from those unique cohorts and then using ai cuz this goes a little bit further on in the in, in the release or the or, or the blog post to drive conversion rates to create new marketing messages based on what they learned
0: from unique first party audiences okay i'm going to trust you on that it's an application of AI for customer data. Okay, cool. I think it's actually super cool. I'm just going to read one more sentence because I enjoy the the verbiage here. Results dwarf pre-existing methodologies and superpower marketing operations. Um, so that's that's really something. All right, Jonathan, congrats on your new startup. Sorry for making fun of you a little bit. Um, we're going to go to the next one, which um, we got a hat tip to a friend of the pod, Keith Petrie, who put us on to this one. So this is a, a press release from ipg about their real id solution and some people online on twitter tried to make some sense of this so i'll read some of this which is you know ipg which is a big holding company oh man the as i'm reading this i can't actually read it because they they put a pop-up ad on top of the content okay here we are i figured out how to hit the i have figured out how to hit close the button ipg today reveal unveiled real id in the cloud an identity resolution application built by axiom and designed to seamlessly integrate with a brand's secure cloud ecosystem to power growth in a cookie-less world Chris, you want to give it a shot
1: you know this reminds me of i don't know what this is but you know this reminds me of do you remember in like 2011 12 when like all the agencies had their own dsp's but they weren't their own dsp's they just like bought a dsp seat and called it their own thing this sounds a lot like that right yeah it's
0: like it's like an id but it's it's like a white labeled id it's an, uh, it's a trading desk it's an id for trading desk tra- trading desk IDs. it's a real id in the cloud what does that mean aren't all ids in the cloud where else would the id be Identity resolution application to seamlessly integrate with a brand secure cloud ecosystem. Uh, we're we're stumped here. I'll just one more sentence. Real ID enables <laughs> marketers to recognize the real people behind the scattered data points, swiftly creating accurate holistic customer views that tap into Axiom's best-in-class data assets. I'm really I'm really struggling here. I mean, I drank my coffee <laughs> this morning, and I'm just struggling. So it's a new, so
2: it's not a new identifier because, you know, what the industry you know, probably doesn't need is a new identifier. It's a new way of stitching together existing identif-
0: identifiers. Yeah. I think the only thing that's giving me a clue here is where it says when it integrates with a brand secure cloud ecosystem. So it sounds
1: like it's a graph. Why do you think companies issue releases like this? Like what's the purpose here? nobody can figure out what this thing is is it to like get you to call and then like I think, explain, you know, I've confused, worked big explain companies to explain this to me of is that times the
0: purpose? press releases are entirely meant for morale boosting internally it's a, <laughs> a lot of times it's just like hey we did it it's out here's the, here's the <laughs> link <laughs> Okay. Uh, We've made fun of this enough. Uh, I have no idea what real ID in the cloud means. I have a better idea what Jonathan Mendez's new startup does. So congrats again, Jonathan, for the startup and sorry to roast you a little bit. Maybe come on, justify your existence. Okay. News of the week. So we have some breaking news. So this is like the steel dossier of ad tech at this point. So there is a anonymous blog post that was put out that has internal documents from Comcast's freewheel division, where I used to work, that... Claims that FreeWheel is doing something pretty shady, where they're increasing bids. They're basically duplicating bids in a algorithmic way, meant to essentially fool DSPs into bidding more on the same inventory. and And it's causing a little bit of a stir in inside circles. I haven't really seen it published that much, but it's there. It's public, and I can send. I could put the link in the show notes. So, Chris, this is actually kind of a common activity in in display, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know how to react to the, this is some like anonymous leak, I don't know. It speaks to this sort of, like, broader industry thing, which you were just referencing, Ari, that um, certainly in the display world, like, there's just a variety of techniques that are all built on this basic learning that, like, if a publisher can send lots of duplicate requests to a DSP, it makes more money. And more duplication equals more money. And I think we have sort of tricked ourselves into believing that that's like a display phenomenon, and that for some hard to specify reason, CTV is different. And I don't think CTV is different at all. And I think you see publishers working with SpringServe and Publica, so that they can run auctions through a lot of SSPs. I think you see publishers working CTV publishers working with ad networks, so they can deploy resold auctions through a lot of SSPs. This all feels consistent with like that broader theme that like, CTV is not special, it's subject to the same basic market forces, and CTV publishers will make more money if they can send more bid requests to DSPs.
0: Yeah, so in this instance, what we're talking about is that the SSP gets a ad slot, there's an ad slot opportunity, and the SSP might send more than one bid request to the exact same DSP for the exact same path, supply path, basically. And maybe they'll change the data a little bit so it's less obvious that it's totally duplicative um, is, that, is that your understanding of what's going on here yeah
1: and I think you you and this this release and like generally people in the industry be like oh that's like an underhanded practice I'm like okay fine but like why is that why is that kind of auction duplication foul play but working with 25 SSPs and integrating them each through preben and Tam and OB is okay like, those are, those are not different things.
0: Yeah, I made the analogy. Someone asked me about, to explain this to them in plain language, and I said, imagine you were selling, like, stocks and bonds and you're at Goldman Sachs. You could call up the, the buyer at J.P. Morgan and say, I have these bonds for sale. Great. But what if you and three of your colleagues call up different desks at J.P. Morgan at the exact same time and tried to sell them the exact same bonds? You might have higher odds of closing a deal. Um, it's not exactly, it, it, it's not immoral, but it's not something that is a good trade practice.
1: I guess I just, I, it's a bad trade practice for sure. It's broken the basic unit economics of ad tech businesses. I just always sort of find myself puzzled about like, why are we saying certain ways of creating auction duplication are normal best practices in the industry and others border on you know bad behavior or, or breaking industry protocols? It's all the same to me.
2: Yeah, I had the same reaction that you did, Ari, which was, you know, this feels like just sophisticated finance trading strategies brought to programmatic advertising. And the more programmatic gets sophisticated, the more we're going to see things like this, quite frankly, unless there's some sort of agreed upon standards within the industry to not do this type of thing for the benefit of customers and for the benefits of, of publishers.
0: Yeah, I think the agreed upon standard of in the industry is that the supply team at the trade desk yells at you until you stop. in writing. So whoever wrote this anonymous blog post has internal Freewheel documentation explaining how it works. So that kind of shook things up. I reached out to some friends at Freewheel to just give me the informal scoop. And their basic reaction was like, hey, uh, Publica and Springserve do this too. So I'm not sure that's good or bad, but that was part of the reaction I got. That's an informal, non-official reaction. I just like have friends there. So, and and we want to thank Publica as usual for being a sponsor of this podcast, but church and state, Okay, so other news this week. The New York Times is bringing back open programmatic. So after making a pretty big deal out of not doing programmatic, they're bringing back programmatic. I guess you got to make money sometimes.
2: To be clear, they're bringing open programmatic back to in-app. So seems to me that that's probably a really good place for New York times to be playing in open programmatic, given that it exposes them to budgets that they might not be seeing on their traditional, you know, sort of like core mobile web and desktop business, IE app installs, performance advertisers, all that
0: type of stuff. Yeah. Monetizing in app for a news site has got to be a nightmare because in app is so overwhelmingly games that I'm not sure that there's going to be a lot of juice in that squeeze. Or squeezing the juice, whichever it is, but you know they probably are under monetizing pretty significantly in app. But if they put a if they put a like video ad in front of my New York Times crossword, I'm going to walk down to Times Square and with a pitchfork like that. Well, it's unacceptable. <laughs> just saying. I just want, I want to put them on notice that I will I will become violent if there's an ad in front of my crossword. That's the second funniest thing that you've said this week. Uh, the, the funniest was your
2: reaction to Brian Morrissey's tweet about Advertising Week being, you know, the bane of Ad Week's uh, existence. That was. I felt uh, that so deeply.
0: <laughs> uh, well, while we're on that, did you guys do any ad- Advertising Week activities? Not a one. Just some things uh,
2: around it uh, to support uh, portfolio companies and, and and see some friends. Um, not
0: nothing on the main stages. You're such a good investor. You'll you'll even take one for your portfolio companies during Advertising Week. Um, Always. Last news of the week. So Google launched like 10 years too late, CMP, DMP. So, you know, I I will say I worked at Google from 2008 to 2010 and they were working on the DMP then. So, you know, 15 years later, they launched it. So this appears to be a method for marketers to upload first-party data into Google and then have the, I guess, the matching of that first-party data inform the use of a lot of different Google products. So Google Ads, the DB360, a bunch of others. So it's it's not really a DMP. It's more like a, I, th- I see it as an enhancement to Ads Data Hub, which may be the right way to think about it. I'm not I'm not really sure. Either of you guys have a thought on this one?
1: Well, the, the release seemed to talk quite a bit about <clears throat> Google's owned and operated properties, which suggests to me that like this is... sort of like underpinning this whole initiative is a strategy to sort of like squeeze as much juice as they can, to borrow your analogy, uh, from their authenticated user base in a way that is sort of like structurally different from what you could do with sort of like standalone ad tech platforms.
0: Right, right. They have this enormous consumer base, so they can identify users presumably using an email address pretty accurately. And then that data, they don't want to they don't obviously want that data to leave their their environment, their ecosystem. But if you're using if you're using one of their ad products or analytics products, you can get insights. And a marketer could say, "Hey, you know, Ari at aripaparo.com, That is a you know one of our high valued users." And then you can see whether it was exposed or not in various contexts.
2: So it's not a customer data platform because it's not connecting to marketing platforms outside of Google. It might be closer to like a purpose-built clean room solution because, you know, they're taking customer data, they're taking marketer data and trying to do cool, innovative stuff, you know, throughout the Google ecosystem.
0: Yeah, it's like a clean room, except it's not really clean. It's just, You put all your data in and it never comes out. It's like... It's like the, the storage attic of clean rooms. <laughs> it's a one-way valve. It's a one-way valve. <laughs> Just put more and more data into this room and it never comes out and no one ever sees it except for Google. Sounds great. Okay, on that note, let's let's call it. This was an amazing episode. Chris, thank you for being here. So stand by for Justify Your Existence with Festra and, and we'll be with you next week as well. Chris, Eric, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Architectures Justify Your Existence, where we ask early stage ad tech and martech startups to tell us why we should care about what they're building. Today, we have Ashley McKenzie, who is the CEO and founder of Finestra. Did I get that right, Ashley?
3: Yeah, that's bang on. Thanks, Eric. All right.
0: Tell us, where's the company based? How many employees and what funding have you taken?
3: HQ'd in the UK. We've got sort of customers all over the world. We currently have 10 FTEs and a couple of consultants. To date, we've got about two million U.S. dollars of equity funding into the company. Oh, great! What do you do? I've never—I have
0: to admit—I've never heard of you.
3: That's okay. Yeah, we provide uh, an independent, and I think that's really important, independent uh, platform and ecosystem that allows programmatic media buyers to understand through analytics and then automatically improve their performance in in their programmatic advertising spend, and we do that through a deep analytics platform. And if you will, marrying log level analytics with optimization and bid modification
0: APIs. Right, so so you're not like a buying platform yourself. You take Cor- the data from the trade desk or other systems like that?
3: Correct, yeah, so we don't intermediate in the buy. We simply ingest data, we get read-write access to the DSPs, we ingest data, we analyze it on our side of the fence, if you will and then we use bid modification apis to change change bid pricing and we do that on a multi dimensional basis right so subject to the apis that, that the dsp's provide
0: All Right. and how fast is the turnaround time It's not a real time optimization right it's, it's a no
3: it, you know the, yeah well the cadence depends on how often you get the data right so you know with the trade desk they have the reds feed so we work with that for some partners and that's that's a stream data set that's 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 getting aggregated and batched on our side but you know data transfer files from dv360 you know these come out every 24 hours so we'll resolve uh however however often we get fresh data to to analyze
0: and what's special about your optimization are you working like some of your competitors say that they work on like more nuanced kpis or you know they really understand what a conversion is better let's say i'm just throwing that out as an example why why, what's your special uh differentiator
3: yeah you know i I guess we go overweight on cpas and performance and conversion so we're basically putting incremental effort into optimization that human beings can't do And the DSP bidders aren't doing because they've got so many other things they've got to take care of. We'll take sales data, customer lifetime value data um, from our our partners, from our advertisers, and we can pull those into our algorithms as well. Um, But really, you know, in terms of optimization, we're often just simply doing things that human beings just cannot do and then taking it to the next level.
0: Cool. And do you have any customers you can name? Any case studies? For sure,
3: yeah. So we work in the States. We're with a fantastic agency called Media by Mother and their clients, Amica Mutual Insurance, Premier Bank. We work with Kindred in various parts of the world. They're a big gaming company called Unibet. Unibet's their big brand, but all of their brands. We work with, commonly we work with Deutsche Telekom, various subsidiaries in Europe as well. Great.
0: And what's your pricing model?
3: We will we, well, go to market. We have two products. We have analytics or we have the optimization that includes analytics. We charge our analytics on a CPM and then the optimization where we're effectively going from value discovery to value delivery, right? We're actually enacting these optimizations. We charge that on a percentage of media and we can do various fixed pricing as well.
0: All right, great. Well, I think you've done a pretty good job justifying your existence. One last question. If your company was an animal, what animal would it be?
3: I'm gonna shoot for an owl.
0: Owl. Okay, why is that?
3: Yeah, I think we're we're pretty observant. We're very deliberate in what we do and and we're generally relative to this industry quite a quiet organization. All right. Very
0: nice. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for being here.
3: You're very welcome, Harry. Thanks so much for the time.